So we've got two readings today. The first one is from Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And the next reading is from Psalm 119. Thankfully, not the whole psalm. Um, We're reading from verses 1 to 8 and then verses 105 to 112. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. I hate the way you look at me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate it so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse, when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact you didn't call. But mostly, I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. Good morning. For those who haven't met me, my name's Darren and I'm I'm a member here at Trinity Church Modbury. Some of you may recognise that poem from the 1999 film 10 Things I Hate About You with Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger. It's a poem that expresses the author's feelings for someone who, by all accounts, they should hate. Someone who can make them feel bad, who can make them cry, who wears big dumb combat boots. And yet it turns out that in truth, the author of the poem didn't hate the person they were writing about at all, but actually loved them instead. The psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 119, is a very long poem which speaks about God's law. These days when we think of law, and particularly biblical law, uh, there's often an accompanying feeling of oppression 
the idea that the law is a killjoy that takes away our fun. I'm sure you've heard these ideas before. But the author of the psalm didn't see things that way. For the author, God's law doesn't kill joy, it brings joy, it brings hope, and it brings life. Rather than the law being something to be avoided, or just followed out of fear that otherwise something bad will happen to you, this psalm expresses the law as something to be embraced, as something to rejoice in. And today we're going to have a look and see if we can work out where that joy in the law comes from. Now, probably the most well-known feature, and it's been mentioned a couple times this morning, of Psalm 119, is its length. At 176 verses, it's not only the longest psalm, it's actually the longest, book in the ent- longest chapter in the entire Bible. And as we've said, its focus is God's law, which is a little strange considering that two psalms before that, we have the shortest chapter in the entire Bible at two verses which focuses on God's love. It seems that psalmists have a different idea of what's important than perhaps we have. The next key feature of Psalm 119, and one that may not be readily apparent in our English translations, is that the entire poem is written as a huge acrostic. So there's 22 stanzas, each of eight verses, and each stanza begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 stanzas. And if you look at your English Bibles, you may see, but before each stanza, uh, there's a Hebrew letter, Aleph, Gimel, and so on. Now, when I suggested that I might write a sermon on this psalm, someone, perhaps unwisely, suggested that I could frame my sermon in the same way, as an acrostic. Apprehensively. I thought I might give it a go. Articulately, I put my mind to it. And to start with, it was easy. And so I began. But soon my confidence turned to trepidation. Because I knew danger was approaching. Barriers to my language skills would arise. Bearing down on my consciousness was the approach of challenges challenges raised by the English language itself. Certain letters that I knew would, call, would be difficult to deal with. Because, see what I did there? Because <laughs> there ain't many words that begin with Q, X or Z. I don't know how many of you have ever tried writing an acrostic poem of any significant length, but the point of that silly exercise was to demonstrate that the, uh, the amount of effort that the psalmist must have put into writing this psalm. It was obviously so important to him that he put a huge amount of effort into framing this psalm. And and perhaps due to the limitations of the acrostic format that it forces onto the writer, we find that Psalm 119 isn't the sort of psalm that takes an idea and develops it gradually over time. Instead, it's got a number of themes that weave in and out throughout the psalm. And so today we'll look at some of those themes and key ideas. It does mean we'll be jumping around in the psalm a bit. And so if you do get the chance, I do encourage you to read the entire psalm. It doesn't take all that long and it really is well worth the read. The psalm begins with a general call to faithfulness in the first three verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, 
who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. Now, any of you who have spent much time in the Psalms, uh, these words may sound familiar because they echo the first lines of Psalm number one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Then for the rest of the psalm, the the author switches to what's best described as a prayer, a poem between the author and God. And there are three main ideas that the the author brings out in this psalm that I'd like to focus on today. And in the spirit of our acrostic, all three ideas begin with the same letter. We could say that today's sermon is brought to you by the letter L. The three ideas are liberty, light and life. First idea we'll look at is that God's law brings liberty. Now, most people these days would say that liberty or freedom comes when we're released from restrictions. The less laws, the better. We should just be able to do what we want. That's true freedom. But let's look at verse 45. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. What's precept? A precept is essentially a command, but it's, it's something more focused on the nitty-gritty of the law rather than the big idea. Because he spent so much time seeking and soaking in the details of God's law, the psalmist says he can walk about in freedom. That's probably not the normal way we think of freedom. But for those who were living in the time period in which the psalms were written, everyone had gods that they worshipped. Israel was supposed to worship Yahweh, although it didn't always work out well for them. Other nations, other nations worshipped Baal or Ashtoreth or Dagon or other gods. Part of the problem with these other gods was that they were often seen as fickle. You just never knew when they might or might not turn up. And you never really knew how to please them. You weren't sure whether your actions would bring the gods blessing or whether you might be smited in battle or killed through a famine or some other disaster caused by the God being generally grumpy. But that's not the psalmist's experience. For him, God had revealed himself to his people through his law. And so the psalmist knew what was required in order to stay right with God. In verse 9, he asks the question, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. And so the law was a source of delight. He says in verse 14 to 16, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. It was through God's law that the psalmist gained freedom, liberty that is found in God's commands, not in the release from them. This all begs the question then, perhaps, what laws in the Bible do we follow? It's been estimated there are about 613 laws in the Old Testament. So do we still follow all of them? None of them? Just the Ten Commandments? just the morality ones? 
there are, of course, a number of no-brainers. Do not kill, do not steal, and so on. And there are a number of laws that are ritualistic in nature, to do with sacrifices and eating certain foods and observing certain festivals that don't seem very relevant to us, probably because we're not living in the ancient Near East and our culture isn't that of the ancient Near East. So maybe there's a key in that somewhere. The laws we see in the Old Testament weren't given to Israel in a vacuum. They didn't just fall from heaven as something brand new that no one had ever thought of before. All of the laws in, that were given to Israel were based on the culture they were in. And many of the laws may have mirrored the laws from other nations around them, but all of them were based on two basic ideas. What were these ideas? We heard Bethany read them out before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God's plan for us is to live as his people in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. So this then is perhaps a lens we can view God's law through. We shouldn't look at God's law in the Old Testament and decide which laws we should keep and which ones we can safely ignore. That's asking the wrong question. It's missing the point. Instead, we should read all 613 laws in the Bible as the way in which God provided Israel a way to be in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. And as a model of how God continues to provide a way for us to be in relationship with him and relationship with each other. And it's through this idea that the psalmist is able to take delight and find liberty in God's law. So that's our first aspect, that God's law brings liberty. The next, next aspect is another L, and that's that God's law brings light. Perhaps one of the most well-known verses from this psalm is one we read earlier and one that Ali brought so well to our attention this morning. Psalm, uh, verse 105, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. How many of us here have a smartphone? How many times in the last week have you or someone you've been talking with uh, had a question about a past event or, or something and, and either you or they have whipped out their phone and done a quick search on Google and found the answer? Yeah, it's quite a few hands. The, the amount of information we have at our fingertips these days is absolutely astounding. And the general consensus seems to be that having access to so much information somehow makes us smarter and more intelligent and wiser. Of course, the reality is there's a difference between having access to knowledge and actually having knowledge. If I go on an aeroplane, I want to be confident that the pilot actually knows how to fly the plane and knows his plane, not just that they have access to that information. What's more, even having knowledge isn't necessarily a good indicator of intelligence. I'm sure we've all come across people who seem to know a lot of stuff about a lot of things, uh, but what they say really doesn't seem worth listening to. If you haven't met those people, spend an hour on TikTok. Or don't. But even intelligence isn't a good indicator of wisdom. Someone once said that intelligence 
doesn't lead a person to find truth. Instead, it just enhances their own ability to justify their own beliefs. In fact, according to a 2019 article from The Guardian, research shows that smart people are more susceptible to fake news and conspiracy theories. After I read that article and thought, "Yep, I agree with all that," I realised it was written on the first of April. It looks legitimate to me, but then I like to think of myself as intelligent. So, what you going to do? Richard Dawkins, in his book *The Blind Watchmaker*, said, "Biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose." Now. Richard Dawkins is an atheist and denies the existence of God. There's no doubt he's an intelligent guy, and he has a great deal of knowledge. But that doesn't lead to wisdom. In fact, the Bible calls him a fool. Psalm 14:1. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." What does Psalm 119 tell us? Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light to my path. God's word gives us light to walk by, but moreover, it gives us insight and discernment. Verse 130: The unfolding of your words gives light; it gives understanding to the simple. Multiple times throughout the psalm, the author calls on God to give him understanding. Verse 34: Give me understanding, so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Verse 73: Give me understanding to learn your commands. Verse 125: Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. Verse 144: Give me understanding that I may live. Verse 169: Give me understanding according to your word. God's law brings wisdom, but it's not an extension of knowledge or intelligence. It's not based on what we know. It's based on who we know. And it's not something that we get given once, and that's it. It's not like, oh, you're wise now. Instead, it, it's something that comes over time as we spend time in God's Word. Your Word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. It's not a lamp that immediately lights up everything in our, for our entire future laid out before us. It's a lamp for our feet to see where to take the next step and the next step. It's a light to walk by. To live by, to choose our path by, and the more time we spend in God's Word, the brighter that lamp for our feet becomes. Verse thirty-two says, "I will run in the path of Your commands, for You have broadened my understanding." Isn't that a great picture? As we spend time in God's Word, He gives us light for the next step and the next one. But as we spend more and more time in God's Word, soak ourselves in it, He gives us more and more light until we can run in His commands, confident. That he will guide us. So God's law brings liberty. God's law brings light. The third L we'll look at today is life. God's law brings life. Now the writer does two things with life in this psalm. First, he sees God's law as restorative and life-giving. Verse ninety-three: I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. On the other hand, the writer also asks God for life, to enable him to keep the law. Verse eighty-eight: In your unfailing love, preserve my life, that I may obey the statutes of your mouth. The phrase "preserve my life" occurs ten times in the psalm, and the idea of God providing life for the purpose of obeying His word 
occurs another five times. For the psalmist, God isn't a remote, hostile dictator who demands that his laws be carried out against the threat of punishment for failure. Instead, not only does life come from obeying God's laws, but God himself provides that very life required to keep his commands. Yes, we're required to keep God's laws, but it's God himself who gives us the ability to do just that. Of course, we still fail to live up to God's standard. And this was no different for the psalmist. Listen to where he ends up in Psalm 176. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. It's not that the psalmist says, if only I can be good enough, then God will accept me. If only I read my Bible every day. If only I pray more. If only I stop doing this or that. If only, if, if only. The psalmist is very aware of his failings, but is totally reliant on God. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Earlier, we hear that same humility and reliance on God. In verse 36, turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. See that last verse. Fulfill your promise to your servant. Why? So that I'll be liked. So that I'll avoid punishment. So that I'll be saved. No. The end goal of our obedience to God isn't our salvation. We don't earn eternal life by being good. The end goal of our obedience to God is not our salvation, but God's glory. We said earlier that God's laws are part of his revelation, the revelation of himself that he's given to us through his word. And he gave us the ultimate revelation of himself when he sent Jesus, his son, into the world. Not through our goodness, but through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he became the ultimate fulfillment of God's law, bringing us liberty from the bondage of sin and death, bringing us understanding and discernment as the light which shines in the darkness, bringing us life, not just here and now, but eternal life in perfect relationship with him and with each other. And he didn't do this for our glory. He did it for his glory. So what do we make of all this? In Psalm 119, we hear the prayer of someone who delights in spending time in God's word, who finds freedom and wisdom and life springing from every page. And that freedom, wisdom and life come as we spend time in God's word. The Bible is, for the most part, something known as meditative literature. It's designed to be read and reread and mulled over and thought through and read again. It's the story that God has given us to tell us who he is, not just a bunch of facts to give us knowledge about God, but through the help of the Holy Spirit to let us truly know God. As a book left closed on the shelf, it does nothing. But by reading it, by meditating upon it, we allow God to speak liberty, light and life into us. Some of you I know already have a, a regular Bible reading routine. And that's great. I encourage you to keep going with that. For those who don't, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years 
or you're still looking into this Jesus thing, I want to encourage you to spend time reading the Bible. About a year ago, I started setting aside some time each morning to read a few chapters of the Bible. I started at the very beginning. They tell me it's a very good place to start. And worked my way from Genesis through to Revelation. And now I've started again from the beginning again. And it's worked well for me. And it's probably my favorite time of the day, spending that time reading the Bible. A friend of mine prefers to jump around a bit more between the New Testament and Old, Old Testament. Um, and uh, he's printed up a list of the, the, the uh, books of the Bible and the chapters and he marks off what he's read uh, to see his progress. It doesn't really matter how you do it. You may even prefer to buy an audio book of the Bible and have the soothing tones of David Suchet read the Bible to you. It really doesn't matter. What does matter is that you read it. Because if what I've said is true, if the Bible really is God's way of revealing himself to us, and if, through scripture, he's providing us a way to be in relationship with him and relationship with each other, how can we just leave our Bibles on the shelf collecting dust? I encourage you, particularly at the start of this year, a great time for a New Year's resolution, to read the Bible. Spend some time each day, as much as you can, to reading the Bible. It doesn't have to be much, but something. That's where God reveals himself to us. That's where we find true freedom, true wisdom, and true life. And it's through spending time in God's word that we too may find absolute delight in God's law. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the freedom, the wisdom, and the life we find in your word. We thank you for the way you have chosen to make yourself known to us so that we can live in relationship with you and with each other. We especially thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again as the ultimate fulfillment of your law. We ask that you will cause us to long to spend time in your word. Entice us with freedom. Draw us in with light. Grant us life that we might know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.